This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Now it's time for another episode of The Children's Hour, stories about Ivanka, Jared, Don Jr., and little Eric. Today, Jared writes a book. He called it Breaking History. For comment, we turn to our chief Jared correspondent, Amy Willens. She's best known for her work on Haiti, most recently the award-winning book Farewell Fred Voodoo. Of course, she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation and former Jerusalem Bureau Chief of The New Yorker. She's also a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow, and she teaches in the Literary Journalism Program at UC Irvine. Amy, welcome back. Thanks. Jared opens his book by saying he, quote, hopes it enhances our shared journey, close quote. What is he talking about? That is so Jared speak. Jared has a new age side to him that really comes out in this book. Our shared journey. I think, well, what he's talking about is his hoped for readers. And he hopes that the people who were on the journey with him already, that is to say Trump supporters, will be reading this book because believe me, they are going to be the friendliest readership this book is going to have. And they're not known for their, you know, deep dedication to reading. So I don't know who they are, but I'm sure it will be a bestseller. I'm sure it already is. Well, let's start at the end of the story, January 6th. We know Ivanka was backstage that day at the Stop the Steal rally where Trump called on the armed mob to march on the Capitol. And then we know Ivanka spent the afternoon in the White House trying to get Trump to call off the attack. What does Jared say about his day of January 6th? He was returning from having brokered a deal in the Arab world to uh, lift sanctions against Qatar. Um, this was very important to him. And he was on a plane returning from that, one of his many, many triumphs that's detailed in this book. While back home, the president was encouraging the Capitol riot, but not according to Jared. According to Jared, he never encouraged the violence. He doesn't even consider that he might have encouraged it. He never it never entered Trump's head that violence could happen at this uh, demonstration. Yeah, what he writes is, um, quote, it is clear to me that no one at the White House expected violence that day. I'm confident that if my colleagues or the president had anticipated violence, they would have prevented it from happening, close quote. That is clear to him. Is that clear to you? No, of course not. We watched it. I guess he didn't have a TV on his plane. But what we saw at the very least was that the president never called in the National Guard when the National Guard should have been called in. But I mean, from then ongoing discussion of what happened on that day, we know that the president was perfectly happy to encourage them. He gave a speech encouraging them. He told them to go and stand up for, you know, their rights. And what did he say? Go wild. It's going to yeah, be let's wild. Let's get wild. It's, it's going to be, be wild. Wild is not relaxed and peaceful, <laughs> especially when it's Trump supporters. And, and we know from that final hearing of the January 6th committee that he didn't call them off until it was clear two hours after the attack, more than two exactly. hours after the attack began, that they were losing to the, to the police. Only then did he call off the attack on the Capitol that Ivanka had been trying to get him to do for hours. Right. He does say at one point in the book, let's see, the three rules of Trump. Controversy elevates message. When you're right, you fight. 
never apologize. And I think that's that also speaks to the January 6th uh, methods of Trump. Controversy, encourage them to go in there and do whatever they want to do. And then don't stop them. When you're right, you fight. So he thinks he's right. He's going to fight and don't apologize. And I, I think Jared goes right along with that. And the only thing he has Ivanka doing is helping to craft Trump's post-riot message. Uh, nothing really about her trying to get him to sort of intervene in, in this situation and stop it. He says he and Ivanka helped write the speech Trump gave on January 7th, which he quotes almost at the very end of the book. Yeah. He quotes Trump saying in the words that he and Ivanka wrote for Trump, quote, the demonstrators who infiltrated the Capitol have defiled the seat of American democracy to those who engaged in acts of violence and destruction. You do not represent our country. This moment calls for healing and reconciliation. We must revitalize the sacred bonds of love and loyalty that bind us together as one national family close quote. Uh, I think this is a little trouble for Jared right now promoting the book since Trump has said he wants to pardon all the people who have been convicted and sentenced to prison for attacking police officers and so on. Exactly. I mean, the end of the book is all about how Ivanka militated for pardons for decent people who had been wrongly, uh, wrongly imprisoned, or wrongly convicted. Does Jared agree with Trump's claim that the 2020 election was stolen and that Donald Trump should be president today? He doesn't say anything about that. He doesn't say that he agrees with Trump, that Trump should still be in the White House. He doesn't say he shouldn't be. He just doesn't address the central controversy that actually caused the January 6th riots. He only addresses the riots as though they happened in a vacuum. Jared's biggest achievement, in his view, was bringing peace to the Middle East. Uh, a lot of people may have missed this story, the Abraham Accords, where uh, two Arab states signed an agreement to recognize the state of Israel. And which two countries were at the White House for signing the Abraham Accords? It was the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, um, and afterwards Morocco and Sudan signed on as well. I was not aware that Bahrain, Sudan, Morocco, and the UAE were important to uh, peace in the Middle East. I thought it was more Saudi Arabia versus Iran. Uh, why does Jared think this is, this is peace in the Middle East, which no other president was able to achieve? Because he knows that those countries are Muslim. He's very close to Israel. And so he feels that an arrangement in which some Muslim countries that he may have heard of before he went to the White House, <laughs> um, have agreed to deal with Israel as a legitimate government. So to him, that's peace in the Middle East. And, and it was framed as such in the mainstream media in many publications, like Tom Friedman's column. So one of the things Jared says in here is that because he is not an expert and has no expertise or, or you know years of dealing with this, he was able to see that you didn't need to have the Palestinians be a party to this and agree to it before it could be done. But his interpretation is completely flawed and his even his expression of what he felt 
I believe, is wrong. What he really felt was he doesn't want the Palestinians to be part of it because Israel doesn't want the Palestinians to be part of it. And therefore, the Palestinians weren't going to be part of it. And that, you know, he would throw some bones to the Palestinians uh, on the West Bank of jobs, job support. But that was that. And then that he would make deals with these uh, Arab nations who are haven't really been completely vested in the Palestinian cause in the first place. Sudan and Morocco come to mind. <laughs> and Bahrain. The larger issue, of course, is defending Trump, his father-in-law. This is not easy. We have, you know, the excess Hollywood tape. We have separating children from their parents at the border. We have calling Mexicans criminals and rapists. We have minimizing the COVID threat. What is Jared's general approach to defending his father-in-law on all of these bad things that Trump did? He defends him in a way that to me is hilarious, especially the rapist thing. So he talks about um, how Trump gave this speech and the speech had been written for him, but because Trump is great, he gave his own speech on immigration and just talked off the cuff, speaking to the real feelings of the American people and calling Mexican immigrants rapists. And he said the reason he called them rapists was he talked to some guy who was at border patrol guy some you know officer nobody officer nobody who said you know a lot of these guys are rapists and criminals so trump put that in the beach on immigration <laughs> and he said trump often does this then he went to the post office and the post office had a plan for a million dollar revamp of the post office headquarters so they could have air conditioning and then he talked to some electrician who was involved in working on the project. And like, they don't need to do this. They could just put a fan in the basement and blow up the cold air. So Trump, you know, abandoned the whole plan for the post office air conditioning. Jared makes it into, you know, all of the biggest mistakes into virtues. That's what he tries to do. And then, of course, we're always interested in the, in the personal stuff, and he knows that. The very first chapter of the book is about his father going to jail when he is young. We know this story pretty well, but how does he tell it? He tells it as if he were a young Black kid whose father was wrongly accused of something, and he had to go and visit dad in prison all the time and how it harmed his life, but it showed him that his dad was strong. Yet what Charlie Kushner was accused of and convicted of were really abominable <laughs> crimes, including the uh, hiring of a prostitute and the taping of the prostitute with his brother-in-law. Which he then gave to his sister. Which he then gave to his sister, his brother-in-law's wife, for reasons of uh, uh, financial revenge. So, you know, it doesn't really sit well, the defense. He never says, and my father was did wrong things. And we do know that his father pledged uh, two and a half million dollars to Harvard, after which they admitted Jared. Does he thank his his father for this in the book? No, no, because <laughs> he doesn't want people to know that. But, you know, there I would have to say, Harvard, <laughs> was that right of you? Mm. <laughs> yeah. And of course, we're very interested in, he knows we are very interested in his romance with Ivanka. He's happy to tell us how great it was wooing her. But there was this crisis where he told her that they had to break up because she was not Jewish and he couldn't marry someone who is Jewish. And then we know that she agreed to convert and she studied to become an Orthodox Sabbath observant Jew. How does he tell that story? 
Well, you know, I don't want to dismiss her conversion because I happen to know that it's really hard to convert to Orthodox Judaism. You do have to study, but the way he tells it, he doesn't want to get into that, of course. That's too Jewish. So he's, this is what he says. We began meeting with a rabbi and studying and practicing Shabbat together. I saw that Ivanka was enjoying these rituals. After a few Friday evenings eating takeout from Second Avenue Deli, my favorite New York deli, Ivanka decided she wanted to learn how to cook to make our Friday nights together more special. She loved it and quickly became an excellent chef. And that That's is it. it. That is it, really. <laughs> and And not only does that make you wonder about Ivanka's conversion, like she wants to learn how to cook for Shabbat, it actually sounds like Ivanka didn't know how to cook at all. You know, he has this part close to the beginning where he talks about the books that influenced him. And, mm -hmm. and he lists Sun Tzu's Art of War. Can you know, you the, the classic that, you know, every politician. Every high school kid, <laughs> every politician, everyone has it on their desk. And he says, so he learned the art of war from the great Chinese classic. But the war that he's talking about is not dealing with, you know, North Korea or Iran. Or nuclear or, weapons. Or China or nuclear weapons. He's talking about dealing with Steve Bannon. And, you know, a lot of the book is about the internal fighting between him and people like Steve Bannon. So that's why I ask, who is this book for? Who wants really wants to read 500 pages of Jared explaining his battles with Steve Bannon and then why he deserves credit for all the great things that he did. I'm not sure that the, that the Trump base really cares about Jared very much. I don't think they do. I do think that the Trump base is like, um, you know, it's a cult of personality so that the people who would read this from the Trump base would just want to be seeing things about Trump. And they would figure that Jared would have things about Trump in here. And he has things about Trump. Not, you know, you can't tell how deep they are because he is, seems to be an extremely uh, superficial person from reading this book. But um, other than that, I would think it's, you know, it almost reminds me of books that older people write about their lives that they then... Uh, get someone to put between hard covers and they make them for their grandchildren. <laughs> and that would be the audience. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. The reviewer for the foreword said he almost felt sympathy for Jared after reading this book. I, I wonder if that's the way you felt. Well, I, you know, I kind of love the book, although, of course, it's way too long. But it's it's depiction of this feckless... Uh, no, 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 nothing. Uh, interfering at the highest levels of American government and the way he's shunted around by everybody, but he doesn't seem to be aware of that. People are always saying to him, thank you, Jared. Go sit over there. <laughs> <laughs> and he thinks that's a great compliment. I'm in the room. And he said, thank you. And they're important. It's It's really like that. But then, of course, he has access to the president, so they have to be nice to him. And he, you know, he's around, so they have to be nice to him. And he's always sort of, he rushes in like Robin to Trump's Batman. And he goes and, you know, he's like the messenger boy. He always has a note in his pocket from someone smart that he's bringing across the way to someone else smart. But he's never the guy who's smart. But he, he depicts himself as a top negotiator. 
at the end of Trump's meeting with Kim Jong-un, the chairman comes out to talk to the people around and Jared's one of them. And he says to Jared, thank you so much for putting me in touch with Mike Pompeo. And like Jared goes on for three paragraphs about how he got him in touch with Mike Pompeo. But the guy didn't want to talk to Jared. <laughs> and Jared at one point says, oh, talking to him will be as good as talking to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been another episode of the Children's Hour. Stories about Ivanka, Jared, Don Jr. and little Eric with Amy Willens, our chief Jared correspondent. Amy, thank you for reading Jared's book. I know it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy, but that's not because the vocabulary is difficult. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.